Well, uh, with that, welcome to Faith Coming to Church. Uh, my name is Mike. I am on staff here with Laura and um, some other great folks. And we're glad to have you with us in person today and, and online today. Before we jump into things with our series today, um, just want to cover some news and pray about some things specifically. So Laura was talking about VBS. And again, that starts tomorrow. Um, we're pretty excited. B- better than 40% of the kids that are going to be with us for VBS next week do not go to church here. And so we're excited to get to invest in our kids and have an opportunity to reach out to and invest in kids right here in our neighborhood. Um, At the end of the week, we're going to have this big old block party. And so um, if you want to help with that, you still can. Uh, Pastor James could use folks, I've been told, don't call them bouncers. All right, call them inflatables because it gets confusing for people, all right? So there are all these inflatables. You can help with that, with face painting and more. If you're like, hey, I'll, I'll give an hour on Friday night. Pastor James would love to talk to you about that. You can put on your connection card or um, just grab him in person. He's, got a, he's running around with a clipboard and a sign-up sheet. Um, please be praying, though, for our leaders, for the weather, um, and just for the kids that we're going to have with us next week. Uh, and then also while I was sitting in the back, I got a... Um, a text. Uh, many of you know Claire and Sherry Bauer. They, they've attended here for years. And Sherry fell down um, and broke her femur and is at the hospital right now. So we're, we're going to pray for her. We're going to pray for VBS in our time, and then we'll jump into things. Father, just, um, just pray for your hands on Sherry, for your hand on mercy and healing on her body. Just pray for the doctors that are going to be working with her that um, you give them wisdom and that she'd be able to get this leg set and get recovered as quickly as possible. God, we just pray for this week to come for Vacation Bible School that you would please have your hands on the weather. We just pray you hold off on the rain in the evening. God, we pray for the kids that are going to be here that you would work in their hearts and that you would draw them to you and that Um, ideas and concepts would um, be planted in their minds that would um, come to bear fruit in the weeks and months and years to come. Just as we take time and we try and uh, explore your word today, please open our hearts and our minds to you and to your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we, we are in the midst of a series that we've entitled Big Ten. And uh, in the series, we're exploring God's Big Ten, specifically uh, the Ten Commandments. And each week, we're we're taking one of these commandments, and hopefully we are seeing that in them, what we really have is foundational principles for God's people. Principles that are meant to, to, to both set us free to live our best lives, and at the same time, protect us from things that would destroy us. And so each week we've just kind of taken one of these commandments and tried to see how they they work in this kind of fashion. And as we continue this week, we're going to go after the sixth commandment. Now, can anybody tell me what the sixth commandment is? Yeah, good. Do not murder. All right? And so this week we're going after number six, and we're going to kind of unpack this and try and see those things in the sixth commandment. Um, Now, if you were with us last week, you may be sitting there and you may be going, hey, wait a minute. Because like last week we did number four, the Sabbath, and this week we're doing number six, murder. And if you're out there and you're going, well, what's your problem? Like, what do you got? What do you got against number five? What do you got against parents? What do you got against authority? And none of those things. Calm down. All right. Here's the deal. 
Um, like many of you, I had a set of parents, and so I, I got nothing against parents. And um, like many of you who are parents, I worked really hard to try and help my kids see the value of authority in their lives, not only in their home, but what's going to come after that. It's, you know, like what's happening in the home is really a proving ground what's going to happen for the rest of your life. But we looked at the way the church calendar was going to fall down. We went, okay, if we do this in exact order, the next week at VBS Sunday, when we've got all kinds of parents and a whole pile of kids in the room, right? It's like, don't kill anybody, kids. And we thought, you know, <laughs> we can switch this around and it'll make a little bit more sense. So number five's next week, number six this week. So sixth commandment, really, really very simple. Um, you, you shall not commit murder, all right? Now, it's, it's an interesting thing. With, with this commandment, you kind of look at this one and you're like, whoo, <laughs> I'm good here, right? I mean, like, do we have any? Never mind, I'm not going to ask that question, all right? <laughs> Chances are, right, everybody in this room has never literally killed somebody. Hopefully, nobody ever will. And so it's easy to kind of go, okay, I'm good on this one. I just kind of take a break, scroll through Facebook. I'm going to be fine. I'm good here, right? I'll pretend like I'm on the version app, right? So pastor won't know, right? But here's the thing about this one. When you unpack the, the word that we have translated here as murder, you discover that there's some range to this. Like, you know, NIV will say do not murder. The, the King James will say you shall not kill. You can already begin to see some range here. There's some range to this word, and, and there's enough range to this word that, believe it or not, what we're going to unpack today probably has some application for every one of us sitting in this room. See, the, the word that we have translated as murder or kill here, it's used for the very first time in the Old Testament, right here in Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments. And then as the law continues to unfold in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and in Deuteronomy, the word gets used again and again and again. And as it does, the writer of the law, probably Moses, is expanding for us our understanding of what God is trying to set us free from and what God is trying to protect us from in the sixth commandment. For example, the, the, the word is used to describe like how the Israelites, they're going to establish this government and that people are going to cross a certain line and what they need to do to that person once they've crossed certain lines that they're not allowed to cross. Like it gives directions for how the Israelites to engage as a government in capital punishment. And it uses this word. Or it'll talk about how they're going to go to war. And they're going to go to war against the Canaanites and what it's going to look for them to take lives in the midst of battle uses this word. So, so to say that the commandment is saying you should never take human life, you should never kill anyone, th that would be way too broad. Because it, it, using that very word, it's like this is how you do capital punishment, this is how you do war. But also as, as the law continues to unfold, it'll talk about taking somebody's life out of revenge or in anger or in a premeditated act. And it's like, hey, that is not okay. You can't do that. Or it'll talk about taking somebody's life in negligence, just foolish, careless negligence, and it condemns that as well. And so as, as the law, you, you get Exodus 20, you could almost translate it as, hey, thou shalt not commit homicide, thou shalt not commit manslaughter. But again, the, the word has even more range than that. When you look at how this word is used, it, it isn't just used to describe murder of the hands. 
a literal taking of somebody's life. It'll stretch all the way back to murder of the heart. The emotions that are the, the breeding grounds for what happens with our hands. And they'll talk about murder of the heart and, and, and everything that lies between our hands and our hearts and what God is trying to set us free from and protect us from in the midst of that. So to try and illustrate some of what the law is trying to do here for us, we're going to look at a narrative from the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 25. And, and it's a narrative that, that, that um, Pastor James actually talked about a, a, a few weeks ago, just really briefly. We're going to go back to it today and kind of unpack it further. But it centers mainly around uh, King David, a man named Nabal, and his wife Abigail. Now, a little bit of backstory that helps us understand what we're going to pick up. Um, while this narrative is unfolding, David is just David. He's not yet King David. At the time, Saul is king. And, and Saul has been chasing David all around the country in an effort to capture David and kill David so that David can't become king someday. Now, as David is running from Saul, he does so all over the place. But in 1 Samuel 25, we find David running, and he's in a place called Paran. All right? He's moved down to the desert of Paran. It's, it's just this vast wilderness area that's really good for two things. From hiding from people who are trying to kill you, and from she it's also good for shepherding your, your flocks. If you've got a bunch of sheep, cattle, goats, this is a great place to take them and shepherd them. Now, as David is trying to avoid Saul, he runs into people who are doing this. He runs into flocks that are, are managed by or owned by Nabal. He runs into Nabal's employees, his shepherds, and all his sheep. Now, David is in the wilderness. He pretty much has the same problem for him, and he's got hundreds of guys who are following him. He's got the same problem that we talked about for the Israelites last week when we talked about Sabbath. You know, like Moses is taking the, the, the nation of Israel on this road trip from, from Egypt to Canaan. It's like, how are we going to feed these people? David does not have the benefit of manna. Right? So he's got to figure out, how am I going to feed myself and my men? When you're in the wilderness, here's how law and order works. Strong make the laws, the weak take the orders. Very simple principle. There's nobody there to enforce anything. Strong make the laws, the weak take the orders. It had been super easy for David and his men to threaten, to cajole, to intimidate, to take from Nabal and his flocks what he needed to feed himself. In fact, he probably could have even justified it somehow in his own mind. But David never does. In fact, when one of Nabal's employees is trying to describe what it was like to interact with David and his men, here's what he says. He says, these men, these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us. And, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day, they were a wall around us the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Not only does David not take what he doesn't have a right to, but David makes sure that nobody else does as well. Now, when we pick up in 1 Samuel 25, Nabal is shearing his sheep. It's, it's payday. It's return on investment time. And so David hears about this, and, and he sends a note to Nabal to, to, to ask Nabal to help him out. He basically says, hey, please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. He's going, listen, Nabal, 
you, you've got all this return on investment coming in. I'm in part responsible for this. Can, can, can you do us a solid? Can, can you send a little something, something our way? Because we're hungry. It's hard to find work out here. We didn't take any of your stuff. We could have. We didn't. Could you please help us out? Now, if Nabal had the least little bit of social skills, he'd have already done this. He'd have realized how good David has been to him, and he'd have preemptively thanked him. If he had just, even if he was moderately competent when it comes to social skills, when he got this message, he'd have been like, oh my goodness, absolutely I can. But we're about to see, Nabal has no social skills. Instead, he is known as being surly and mean. Here's what he says to David. He sends this message back. He's like, who is David and who is the son of Jesse? Right? And then he, he tries to get kind of poetic and sound kind of wise. He's like, many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? In other words, I'll tell you who David is. He's some upstart punk who's trying to take what he doesn't have a right to, and I'm not the one. Now, in case you're wondering... This is a bad example of a thank you note, all right? All, right. All, all you seniors, you're doing your grad parties, you're filling out your thank you notes right now. This is not the way to go. You know, who are you coming to my party eating up my food? No, don't go there, all right? Now, David gets this, and he's not okay. He is not okay with it. And he has right to not be okay with it. Again, he could have taken from Nabal. He had the power to do so, and he didn't. He didn't have to protect this man. He didn't have any obligation to do that, and he did it anyway. And then when he humbly, your servants, your son, when he humbly comes and asks for help, not only does Nabal say no, but Nabal intentionally insults him as he says no and does so in front of his men. David is not okay. And as David responds, we're going to watch David break the sixth commandment. David says to his men, he says, listen, I've got my weapon strapped on. You strap yours on. We're going to Nabal's house. We're going to deal with this. And, and so when we get done, not one male belonging to Nabal will be have left alive by daybreak. Or the King James Version, it puts it in a slightly earthier tone. Here we got the King James here. Surely, therefore, there had not been left unto Nabal by morning light any that pisseth against the wall. Somebody asked me after church, did you say pisseth in church? I'm like, I'm reading the Bible, all right? Now, if you're a King James only person, if the manuscript evidence wasn't enough for you and hundreds of years of additional scholarship wasn't enough to you, this ought to convince you it's time to update your version, all right? I'm just saying, all right? But the, David's like, listen, if they're a man, if they pee standing up, they are going to die. This is his plan. Now, spoiler alert, right? 
David doesn't kill anybody. Doesn't kill Nabal, doesn't kill his shepherds, doesn't kill his employees. Nobody dies. And you go, well, wait a minute. You said, like, David violates the sixth commandment. He does. He does. But again, the sixth commandment is about so much more than just murder with the hands. It's about murder with the heart and murder with the hands and everything that falls in between here. And David, he goes there. Jesus says he goes there. The Old Testament law says he goes there. Take Jesus, for instance. And Jesus says, he says, you have heard it said to people long ago. He's like, remember way back, Exodus 20. You have heard it said to people long ago, you shall not commit murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Jesus, now he is speaking to a community of people who live in a religious culture that teaches, hey, as long as you don't literally snuff somebody's life out, you're good with God. You can do anything short of that. As long as you don't murder somebody, you're good with God. And Jesus is like, hey, you've heard it said you shall not murder, and anyone who commits murder should be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus is like, listen, you're all going, hey, I didn't choke somebody out. Me and God, we're good. I'm telling you, you commit murder in your heart, we're talking about the same penalty as if you committed it with your hands. And here's the thing. Jesus doesn't make this up himself. No, Jesus is just plagiarizing from the law of Moses. He is the ultimate sermon pirate, Jesus is. See, you, you go back to the book of Leviticus. L- listen, listen to what, what, what is written here in the law. Do not go about, do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Did you catch this? The law makes a connection between how we communicate about another person and their life. He's basically saying here, hey, don't commit murder with your mouth. If he was writing to us today, he'd probably say, hey, don't commit murder with your keyboard. How you communicate about somebody and their life, these two things are connected. And then the writer goes on. says, hey, do not, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. See, for God, murder starts right here in our hand, in our heart. Starts right here in our heart. And it can move to our mouth, and it can move to all kinds of other actions, and it eventually can land right here in our hands. And God is saying, hey, I'm not okay with any of this. Because all of this, it's going to leave you enslaved. See, that's what happens to David. Again, Nabal does these things, and they're wrong. He shouldn't have done them. But when he does, David goes further than, hey, this hurt me, this wounded me, this makes me upset. No, instead, emotionally, something erupts in David. 
And he is so mad, he's like, I am going to literally kill him. And I'm not just going to kill him. I'm going to kill every shepherd that works for him. I'm going to kill every man that lives in his house. Now, when David goes there, just how free is he? Think of it this way. You ever have somebody do something wrong to you? Right? Like they say something, they do something, and it's, I mean, it's like, it's way beyond the line. And it doesn't just hurt you, it doesn't just wound you. Like, again, something inside of you emotionally detonates. And there's all this rage and anger and resentment and bitterness. And that scene, what they said, what they did, it just plays over and over and over and over and over again in your mind. And every time you have rerun roles, you think of all the things you should have said and all the things you'd like to do now. If you've ever been there, just be honest with yourself. In the midst of all that angst, how free were you? See, I've been there more times than I care to admit. And if I'm being honest, I'm not free. I have unwittingly handed control of my emotions and my actions over to that other person. The person who I'm upset with, the person who hurt me, they are now the controlling factor in my life. With number six, God's trying to set us free from that. He's trying to set David free from that, and he's trying to set David free from more than that. He's trying to set David free from all these things that are going to destroy David if he keeps going down this road. He's trying to set David free from all these things that are going to destroy him if he keeps going down this road. So Abigail, right? She hears, this, this is what they did to David. She hears what David's planning on coming and doing to them. She goes running out and she's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I am so sorry. If I'd have had any idea this was going on, I'd have taken care of this sooner. I brought all this stuff to make good on what my husband didn't. And then Abigail, she, she makes this long statement that's designed to try and help David see. There's so much wisdom here. She says, Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord. Because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as, a, as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has filled, fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged his enemy, avenged himself on his enemy. See, Abigail's trying to get David to see. You can do this thing. You can let your heart and your hands go here. And there's going to be a momentary sense of satisfaction in this. But then there's going to be a whole pile of consequences for you and all kinds of people around you after. Like she's like, David, David, 
Can't you see? If you do this, this isn't an act of war. This isn't, this isn't capital punishment. This is murder. And when, when you murder someone, it impacts your relationship with God. And the impact is not positive, right? This is, this is not going to be good for you and God. But this, see, this is the way it works. When, whenever we allow ourselves to go to that murderous place, be it in our, in our hearts where there's anger and resentment and bitterness, be it with our mouths where we say all kinds of nasty things about that person behind our, their back, be, be it in public when we get on a keyboard and on social, we just blast them in front of the whole world. We're doing things intentionally designed to create digs and to make them pay. All the way up to murder with the hands. None of that is good for our relationship with God. It's what motivated John to write this. He said, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. He's like, listen, you, you, you let your heart go to that place where you cross that line. There's this bitterness, that resentment there. You've got a murderous heart. John says, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Now, this term, eternal life, John uses this term extensively, and almost every single time he uses it, he's speaking of a present tense reality. He's not talking about heaven someday. He's talking about what does it look like for people who have been redeemed to live in genuine relationship with God and experience the fullness of life he designed us to live into. John's like, listen, you're running around with all this murder in your heart and you think you're going to experience that kind of life? You're deluding yourself. This chunk from the heart to the hands and everywhere in between, this impacts your relationship with God and it's not good. Or, or Abigail tries to get David to see. She's like, David, if, if you do this thing, again, this is murder. This isn't justified. There's no war, there's, there's, there's no capital offense here. If you do this, you are a murderer. And the punishment for that, you've crossed a line where you should be executed after doing this. Now, David, he's got a chance to do this and get away with it. If he becomes king, he can become somebody who's above the law. But it's forever going to impact how people see him and who he will become. Everybody's going to be looking around, they're going, okay, we got Saul over here, and he's abusing his power to try and take David's life. And we got David over here, and he abused his power to take Nabal's life. Guess Saul and David really aren't that different after all, are they? I guess David just really became the man he once despised. See, it's ironic, but it's true. When I let my heart go to that place, I let my mouth and my actions go to those places, I sink down to the level of the person who hurt me. To some degree, in some way, I become like them. There's nothing freeing in that. Or, or Abigail's trying to get David to see, hey, this isn't just you and Nabal. Like, David, you do this thing. Your men do this with you. You don't just become a murderer. They become murderers as well. 
You're not just going to take Nabal's life. You're going to take his shepherd's lives and his servant's lives. All kinds of genuinely innocent people are going to die if you go here. But again, this is how this works. See, we like to think, we, you know, we can go here in our heart or with our mouths or with our actions, and we can, we can keep this contained inside of us. We can keep this contained to us and that, that relationship, that person who hurt us. But you can't. I've been doing this long enough to know. It always spills over. It spills over outside of you. It spills over outside of that relationship with you and that one person. And it spills out onto the people who are closest to you. The people you say you care about. The people you say you love. They know you can't keep it contained because they're paying for it even now. See, with this commandment, God is trying to protect us from that. He's trying to set us free from all of that. So with number six, he says, hey, you shall not commit murder. You shall not kill. You shall not, you shall not endanger or take a life from your heart to your hands and everywhere in between. Here's the problem, though. As long as we live here on this planet with people, they're going to make us want to go there. They're going to do stuff that just makes us want to lose our minds. Life would be easy if not for the people. So, what I want to do as we wrap this up, just think about two responses, not for if somebody makes you want to go there, but for when somebody makes you want to go there. Two responses that can help lead to freedom instead of enslavement. First one's found in Romans. Paul says this, he says, And do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And then he, here he's going to plagiarize from Leviticus. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. See, response number one that leads to freedom is simply this. Let God be God. It's God's job to make somebody pay. It's God's job to be punitive. Not my job, not your job. It's, we, we, we want to be free, let God be God. See, every time I try and make somebody pay, whether it's with my, my heart, my mouth, my hands, whatever, I'm saying one of two things to God. Maybe I'm saying both of them. But I'm, I'm either saying, hey, God, I can do this better than you. Take notes, heaven. Watch me go on to action here. I'm going to show you how this is really supposed to be done. Which, when you think about it, is stupid. Right? Like, who's better resource to make somebody pay? God or you? Like, if you're genuinely committed to seeing them suffer, you're going to let God do it because he can do a better job than you. But oftentimes we don't do that, and, and it leads to the second thing that we're saying. I don't trust you. I don't trust you not to make them pay. I don't trust you not to get all merciful and gracious and forgiven and let them off the hook. And since I know better than you do who deserves judgment and who deserves mercy, I'm bringing it. 
<laughs> it's so Percy. Right? If we want to be free, we got to let God be God. We have to trust that God is wiser than us, that he knows better than us who deserves mercy and who deserves judgment. We have to be willing to trust that the just judge of the earth will do what is right. There's freedom in that. Second response is found in that longer passage we looked at from Leviticus. Can you go right to the end for us, Johannes? One more. There we go. Second response is right here at the end. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Who here has never blown it with another person? Thank you, Fred Menko. All right. Who here? He didn't raise his hand. All right. Who here? Like, would all the perfect people please stand up? Yeah. Saw a couple people. Yeah, yeah. Here's the thing. We all blow it. Every one of us, we blow it. Now, when you blow it with somebody else, how do you hope they're going to respond? Man, I hope they're just bitter and angry and nasty. I hope they give me the cold shoulder. They're, they're short or they don't talk to me at all. I hope they just chew me up when they're talking to other people around me. I hope they jump on social and they get all passive aggressive about what they have to say about me. I hope they get so creative about how they're going to make me miserable and suffer for what I did. I just can't wait. We don't say that. We hope that when we blow it, not if, when we blow it, that person's going to be merciful and gracious and forgiving. You want to be free? Love your neighbor as yourself. The way you hope they would treat you when you blow it with them Treat them that way when they blow it with you. See, with the sixth commandment, God's trying to set us free to live a better life. He's trying to protect us from what would destroy us and those around us. He says, hey, life is sacred from the heart to the hands and everywhere in between. So you let me be God. And you love your neighbor the way you want them to love you. Let's pray. Father, just today, if there's somebody who we're struggling with, if there's a neighbor for us, whether in actuality or in just our perception, God, I pray you bring that person to mind for us. Today we want to follow the words of Jesus. We want to follow the wisdom that Moses left us. We want our lives to echo what the apostles wrote after them. And so we just, that person, we just lift them up to you in the quietness of this moment. 
just speak their name to you. Lord, give them to you and let you be God. We want to ask for your grace to treat them the way we want to be treated. To extend to them what we were so glad to receive from you in the first place. Help us, we pray, please. In Jesus' name, amen. 